In the name of God who created us, in the name of Jesus who redeemed us, in the name of the Holy Spirit who sustains us. Amen. Those of us who have been around the Episcopal Church since before 1979, well, let's make it 1976. Let's go a little bit further back than that when we had the green book and the blue book and the zebra book and all that had to do with prayer book revision. Probably fondly remember the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. I made a comment this morning that the present prayer book is dated 1979, which was now 32 years ago. We need to quit calling it the new prayer book. It, in the revisions and the searching for tradition and reclaiming of tradition and introducing a few new traditions, um, our Sunday morning worship changed. Uh, rather significantly, at least around here. I grew up at St. Luke's, as most of you know, and I assume that was true here and throughout most of the South and most of the church, and that three Sundays a month at each major service, we had morning prayer, and one Sunday a month, we would have communion. It switched back and forth at St. Luke's, but that's not important. Um, I have sung in the choir. I had sung in the choir since I was four years old, And those of you who are here earlier this morning, I remember now why I quit singing. It's because I had a job, uh, not because I didn't want to sing anymore, but I had a job that would allow me to buy a car when I turned 16, so I quit singing. car was more important than lifting up my voice and praise to God, I guess. Um, But my favorite, one of my favorite um, parts of, of being in the choir was Communion Sunday, We would sing, we would hear the Decalogue anytime there was communion. That's another change. Um, We could, but we don't. And um, the, the, the response was, Lord, have mercy upon us and write all these thy laws in our hearts. We beseech thee, still and write one. Um, And I loved the tune. It's the same setting that we just sung the Kyrie to. And for some reason that made, that made me sing, made me joyful. Uh, But what it points to is that even as a young child, hearing the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments on a regular basis, uh, created in me an understanding, a a knowledge of what it is that God expects from us at the very bottom line, at at the very foundation of our faith. I like to call the Ten Commandments the Big Ten. Um, And it, it, it wrote them on my heart and... Uh, to this day, I sing them in my soul, even though at that time I didn't understand some of the concepts such as adultery or covet. Um, I still knew about stealing and other things. In the spring of 1996, I received a telephone call from the diocesan uh, canon for community ministries. She had received a telephone call from a chaplain at Phillips State Prison in Buford, Georgia, and also had received a letter previously uh, from an inmate there who wanted to see an Episcopal priest, who wanted a pastoral call. The prison is only a few miles as a crow flies from the church property. We hadn't built the church yet, uh, but I was it. I was the one. And I said, of course, I'll go see him. To make a long story short, after two interviews with the chaplain, another interview with the a deputy warden for inmate care, a couple of other visits, a full FBI background check, a photograph, fingerprints, 
and a badge, I was able finally, after a couple of months, to get in to see him. Now, I had been in several um, county jails to visit, I promise you, just to visit. <laughs> but going into a relatively, I think it's the second, second highest level of security in state prisons in the state, to go into a state prison was something very, very different. In our first visit, I was allowed into a small visitation room, an interview room with glass in between us and a telephone. And we visited for a few minutes, and we had a limited amount of time. There was a guard standing outside of the door on my side, probably one on his side. And um, toward the end of the visit, he said, did they tell you why I'm here? And I said, no, I don't know why you're here. And he said, I'm a murderer. I killed my girlfriend. We were drunk and drugged, and we got into a fight, and I killed her. Now, will you come back to see me? I said, of course. Of course. It is our responsibility to go and see prisoners in jail. Jesus teaches us that, and because I wear this funny collar, I can sometimes get doors literally open that you can't. And I went back to see him. In the second visit, we were in the same kind of room, but this time it was just a stainless steel table between us uh, with a guard I know on both sides watching us. Um, but we were able to talk face-to-face -face and not on the telephone. And at the end of that visit, he asked me if I would bring him Holy Communion the next time I came. And I said, well, I will do that. I said, I think I'm going to leave the wine at home and bring some grape juice because I don't want to end up in here with you because you're not supposed to take weapons or alcohol or drugs or cell phones or any other contraband into prisons, and you can suffer the same fate that the person you're visiting has. And so I went back the third time, and I started the service. He said, wait a minute, do you mind doing right one? And do you mind starting with the Decalogue? He had grown up here in the Atlanta area. He'd actually dated a priest's daughter. He was a lifelong Episcopalian, and he was very... Um, intentional about his worship uh, up until the time that he quit going to church and fell into this relationship which only went downhill and obviously ended in a tragic death. As Lent rolled around, he asked me if I would hear his confession before Easter, the first confession since the time he took this woman's life. And I said, of course. And we talked about it some in a few weeks before Easter. I'm not breaking the seal of the confessional here, nor am I betraying a confidence because he told me that if ever I could speak about his life and his mistake in a manner that would help other people, that I had permission to do that. And I'm not going to tell you the nature of the confession, but I have to tell you that it was one of the most powerful and present, God-present moments of my ministry. It was sincere and from the heart, and God's love abounded in the space. A little later, he asked me if I had ever wondered why he always wanted to hear the Decalogue. And I said, well, I hadn't really thought much about it, but tell me why. And he said, because I think it's part of what's the matter with this world. I think we miss hearing the bottom line, the, the, the final expectations, the concrete basement of what God expects for us, from us. After all, God says God will be our people, our, our God, if we will be God's people, 
and one of the ways of being God's people is following the Ten Commandments, and we don't hear them enough. We tend to forget them. We hear what the world is saying to us, and we forget that God has some fundamental expectations of us as followers of Jesus. And I've thought about it, and I agree with him. In fact, if I had my way, we'd probably do the Decalogue once a month before one of our communion services, but I'm not the rector and I'm not going there. I just... But we don't hear it enough. We lose sight of the, of the very basics of being a follower of Jesus. After all, we're all sinners. Let's think about them. I'm not going to go through all ten, but how often in one day do we all tell little white lies in order to keep people comfortable not to mention some big ones along the way, false witness. Or how often do we covet something that somebody else has? It's easy to do. I can do it in traffic in a heartbeat. <laughs> how often, how often do we uh, use the Lord's name in vain? Now, in college, I have to admit, I was a carpet layer all summer, so I laid carpet in college. And I use the Lord's name in vain regularly. It might be because I hit my thumb with a hammer or carpet layers have a different kind of expectation of language and um, um, the Lord's name was used freely, let me tell you. But how easy it is for us to fall into sin, to fall short of these ten simple expectations, rules, commandments that give us life and give us love and keep us in right relationships with one another. I don't know about you, but I know that I need to confess my sins regularly. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that we all uh, do know about us, I think. We all have tendencies to put up walls and to put up bars and to, to separate us from God and to separate ourselves from others, to put ourselves in prisons to cut ourselves off, to leave behind that which gives life and choose that which leads to death. We're no different than my friend in prison. This morning, we began our worship with these words. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful, forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That is what this season of Lent is about. Admitting, admitting to ourselves and to the Lord who created us and to the Savior who redeemed us and the Holy Spirit who will carry us into the future that we have fallen, we have stumbled, we have fallen short of God's desire and God's will for us and then to confess those sins and to hear God's forgiveness and love and mercy. To understand that the one who created us wants us to turn away from the darkness, turn away from the prison, turn towards the light, and toward, turns toward, turn toward the freedom that comes with faith. The Ten Commandments are a gift to us. May we carry them in our hearts and write them upon our foreheads, and may we always remember that the response, Lord, have mercy upon us and write these thy laws on our hearts, we beseech thee, is a proper and appropriate response.
to those of us who journey toward God's kingdom. Lord, have mercy upon us. Amen.